I was reflecting this week on how the concept of betrayal is so powerful to us as individuals and as cultures that the names of famous betrayers enter our vocabulary. Have you ever, have you ever considered that? Uh, maybe you've heard the word quizzling before. A quizzling. Quisling actually entered our name within the last 100 years because there was a man named Quisling, Vidkun Quisling, a Norwegian who in World War II in that time, he tried to bring about a coup d'etat of the Norwegian government in order to turn it over to the Nazis. And when the Nazis actually came in and established their rule in in Norway, he was the head of the government. And he, and his name, Quisling, became synonymous with a traitor. Someone who cooperates, who collaborates with the enemy. A Quisling. You can look it up in your dictionary. This concept comes even into our modern artistic world. If you think of the famous words that Shakespeare attributed to Caesar when he was uh, murdered and when he was betrayed, et tu, et tu, Brute, et you too, Brutus, my friend, my protege, you were the one who were with my enemies. That resonates with us. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a visitor here at Straightgate with her daughter, and I talked to her after the service, and she talked about the message so resonating with her when we were even beginning to introduce Judas going to betray Jesus to his enemies. And she said, her, she told me her daughter had just dealt with, a, and she said, with a Judas this week. That's entered our vocabulary. A Judas. You know what a Judas is? A Judas is a traitor, a quizzling, a Brutus, whatever it is. These words enter our language because all of us know the deep, deep pain that this kind of betrayal brings about. We have an American word for it too. A name. Who is it? A Benedict. Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold was a Revolutionary War hero initially for, for the United, for what would become the United States of America, for the American colonies. He was a general. He rose to the level, I understand, of a major general, won major defeats, and yet he became increasingly disenchanted. He became jealous of the promotions of other, even younger generals. He thought they were receiving credit that he should receive. He was married to a, a wife with, with a loyalist family to Great Britain, and he turned tail. He went with the British, and he planned to give over a West Point. To the British, that plot was foiled, and he fled to the, to the Brits. And from that time, a Benedict Arnold is a traitor. This kind of conception of this betrayal comes in its deepest and darkest lines in this story, the story of Judas. Why is Judas the greatest of all betrayers, or I guess you would say the worst? is because no betrayal across all of human history has ever betrayed more for less. 
No betrayal. Benedict Arnold. Ahithophel uh, betraying David in the Old Testament. Quizzling with the, with the Norwegian people. Brutus. No betrayal. Betrayed more. The only perfect man. The God-man. For less, or we might say, at a greater cost to himself. And this morning what I would like to do from Mark chapter 14 and some other passages is just simply look at what I'm going to call this morning a Passover betrayal. Two weeks ago when we were last in Mark 14, we looked at verses 12 through 16 and we saw the preparations for this Passover meal. They were secretive. Jesus told his disciples, go talk to so-and-so and then you're going to come in Right? He's giving them almost in code. You're going to see a guy with a pitcher, and then you're going to follow him, and then you're going to go talk to the guy of the house. I'm not even telling you his name, and you're going to say, where's the room where, I can make ready the, where we can make ready the Passover? Why so secretive? Because there was a plan. It was God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus would be the Passover lamb who was slain for the sins of all of us. He was the substitute. He was the sacrifice. And therefore, he would not be betrayed before his time. Before he was able to have this Passover supper with his disciples and institute for them the Lord's Supper. So Jesus is now, if you will, walking right into the teeth of the enemy. And now... Tonight, or this morning, I should say, in this Lord's Supper, in this last Passover feast, we see this Passover betrayal. Jesus identifies it, and it ends with Judas going to accomplish his plot. A Passover betrayal. And what I want to do this morning is look at this betrayal from three different perspectives. There's really three different pictures or perspectives in this narrative that we're reading. There's the perspective of the disciples. We'll look at that. And it's provided for us right here in the text. We'll look at the perspective of Jesus himself, the one who was betrayed by one of his closest friends who was stabbed in the back. And then we'll look at it from the perspective of the betrayer himself, and these sobering words that Jesus gives to him. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. It would be better for that betrayer if he had been never born. Let's start first of all by looking at the perspective of the disciples. And what I want us to look at now first is the focus of these disciples as this betrayal is introduced to them. And I want us to see, if you'll notice in your Bible, if you have it, whether in text or whether you have it on your phone or tablet or other device, I encourage you to have that open with us this morning. If you'll notice in verse 17... It says here, and in the evening he cometh with the twelve. Now you remember that takes us back to what had just been happening. Jesus had sent a couple of his disciples to prepare the meal. And to prepare the feast. And they go through this kind of cloak and dagger ritual that Jesus had presented for them. Find the guy with the pitcher and then follow him to the house. And then ask the guy in the house, where's the room where the master's going to have the Passover? And he shows them a large upper room. It's completely furnished. 
They likely would have gone out and gotten the lamb. They would have killed the lamb as a, as a sacrifice. They would have taken the meat back to this dinner together. And then later that day, at, at evening, sometime around 6 o'clock likely, Jesus would have re returned, and it would have been now with the other disciples a Passover dinner. He comes with the twelve. And now look at verse 18, and as they sat and did eat. Now this word sat is, is not exactly the picture of the word. The, the actual word has the idea of reclining. They were reclining. Now, have you ever seen that, I think it's Da Vinci, the picture of the Last Supper? Right? And Jesus is sitting there in the middle. Doesn't he have a dinner plate over his head or something like that? And, and, and you've got all the disciples sitting down the table and they're like, there's this... That's not it. That's not at all what it looked like. So just you can put that artistic rendering out of your head. Actually, how they would eat this day is they would recline. But they would not recline back as if they were in a lazy boy. They would actually recline on their side, on their left side, with their feet stuck out behind them. And they would probably prop themselves up on an elbow, leaning toward the table. The table's here, they're leaning like this. And they would take their right hand and take the food and eat it like that. They would take the bread. This was their utensil, if, they, if you will. They would take the bread, they would take the meat, they would take the other things, and they would just eat it like that, reclining. That's, for example, one reason we say, have you ever read in the book of John when it said that John at that dinner was leaning on Jesus' breast, his chest? You've wondered, how, how is that going on, right? What? What? Well, it actually makes sense. They are reclining next to each other, and Jesus literally would have been very close to John. John was sitting right next to him. It's a very different way of eating than we experience, but that was, would have been the picture. They're all reclining, they're eating, they're very close to one another, and their feet are out away from the table. And as they're reclining, they're sitting and they're eating the meal, Jesus said, Verily or truly I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And at that point, just a bombshell goes off in the room. I mean, every single one of them would have said, What? Uh, come again? Now again, remember what, this, remember what this was. This was their national and religious great celebration of the entire year. The Passover feast, even to this day, being held by Jews across the world. This was their... Christmas. This was bigger than their thanksgiving. I mean, imagine you're sitting with your family and your closest friends around the Christmas dinner table, the place that's supposed to be the most secure, the most um, uh, connected, the most at harmony, and, and the head at the table says, I'm just letting you know, one of you is going to betray me to die. And every one of the family says, whoa, whoa. Can we go back to reminiscing about those fun memories from childhood? Right? They're shocked. Now notice, and they began to be sorrowful. And to say unto him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Now in fact, the other gospel records tell us they actually started looking at one another. And can you imagine that scene? Jesus said, one of you guys, you're going to betray me. And they just start looking at each other. I can't be Peter. Judas? No way. 
He's the treasurer. He's got, the, he's got our money. He's the most trusted. He's the accountant. In fact, it's likely here that Judas was sitting in a place of honor right next to Jesus. It, it, it seems likely that he was sitting to Jesus' left. John, sitting at his right, he was the one leaning against Jesus. Judas, I mean, this guy was not suspected. He was the trustworthy one. Here he is, I mean, they just start looking at each other, and they start debating about it, apparently. I don't know, can you imagine those conversations? Probably went really well for peace and harmony at the table. And then, out of their own grief, and out of their own anxiety, they started asking him, is it I? One by one, like they went around, it, is it I? Those who know Greek say there's actually an implied negative here. Like the form of it, they, were, they weren't saying, is it I, as much as they're saying, it's not me, is it? Not, not, not I. Right? Right, Jesus? I mean, again, think about this. This was their best friend. This is the guy they had lived with and done everything with for the last three or three and a half years. I mean, it, yeah, they'd be sad. Yeah. Utterly distressed and anxious. Now, this shock would have come not just from the fact that their friend was being betrayed, but the manner in which it was being done. You need to understand something about the way that Middle Eastern people think of hospitality. Hospitality is one of the great bonds to people, even to this day, in the old city of Jerusalem. I experienced it back now, probably more than 20 years ago. I went to Jerusalem, and we were staying in the old city uh, at this hostel, and our old friend Andy Johnson and I uh, went looking in those early 2000s days for an internet cafe. You remember one of those things before the smartphones, right? We have it all the time, everywhere. We went looking for an internet cafe. I won't tell you why we went looking at it. It absolutely had nothing to do with the outcome of a football game that was going on. I promise. It, it, it absolutely, I promise. No, it was to figure out who won a football game. Um, so we're going, and it's night. And these are in like the days of rage in Jerusalem. And you walk down the streets of the old city, and literally there are the, the Israeli soldiers holding M16s, like literally just on guard. I don't know what my dad was thinking when he let me go out late at night in the old city of Jerusalem, but nonetheless, I went out, and Andy and I went, we were looking for this internet cafe, and I still don't remember how we ran into a Palestinian man, and we just began talking with him, and the next thing we know, we're sitting in his living room. Come on, come, you gotta come. He invites us to his house, we go into his house, suddenly there are like provisions set before us, something to drink, we're chatting like we're the best of friends, he's putting on home videos of his children playing like musical instruments or something, and we're like, oh, that's great, awesome, you know, and we're just, it's like we were best of friends, and we had just met the guy. And in this bond of hospitality, these are the people sharing the Passover meal with you. They're your best friends. When Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me, it would have just been like, no way! That is unthinkable culturally. And how much more unthinkable is it that is, it is Jesus, the one who is being betrayed. But notice where they get ultimately in their focus. They get to self-examination. They move through shock, they move through sorrow, and they get to self-examination to say, Lord, it's not me, is it? 
And I just want you to know something interesting. Do you know Jesus never resolves the question for them? Do you notice he doesn't say, hey boys, don't worry, it's not the 11 of you, it's Judas. Well, why wouldn't he have said it was Judas? You think Judas would have gotten out of that room alive? No, seriously. Judas is the one who's going to betray me. Those 11 guys, all right, no he's not. I mean, Peter was the one who took out a sword when he got arrested and started swinging it so wildly he chopped off a guy's ear when he meant to split him down in the middle, okay? I mean, these guys were ready. These guys were ready to try to defend. And I don't think Judas would have made it out alive. But in any event, I think Jesus had an even deeper purpose. Don't you think these people needed some self-examination at that dinner? Peter was the one who says, oh, everyone else will, but not me. And then what happened? Oh, he denied him. What happened to all those 11? They ran. They fled in their fear. I think Jesus didn't explain who the betrayer was because he wanted them to be asking. It might be me. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? It might be me. I I just want to make one comment here. There is um, a, a, a culture, I think, that perhaps even is spreading in our American Christianity that we, we want to go to a church and and be built up, and to always feel better about ourselves when we leave the building than, than when we came in. You hear it in the Christian radio stations, uplifting. It, it, it's uplifting. Well, sometimes we need to be uplifted. Don't get me wrong. But I also see in this phrase, sometimes Jesus expects us to have some self-examination. And he expects some conviction to come into our life. And he expects us to look at him searchingly when we receive a warning and say, Jesus, is it me? You warn against falling away. Jesus, could that be me? Jesus, you warn about my fear and anxiety. Is is that me you're talking about right now? Let's remember that Jesus speaks to us in ways that sometimes are intended to provoke us to feel a little bit worse about ourselves before we can begin to feel a little bit better about what he has done for us. Let's not miss the focus of the disciples getting to self-examination and sitting there for a little bit at this Passover feast. So first of all, if we focus from the perspective of the disciples, it's shock, it is sorrow, it is self-examination. But now let's move the spotlight for a minute to the Savior. And what I want to focus on with him is what I'm going to call a fulfillment. The disciples were focused on these things. What was Jesus focused on? He was focused on a fulfillment. Will you notice with me right here in the text, we'll see it come out. Notice, they began to be sorrowful. And as they're saying, is it I? Is it I? And he answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. I'm not giving you a a clue. I'm just telling you, it's one of you twelve. Look at what he says in verse 21. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. He says, oh yeah. The Son of Man is going to go just like that. Just like it was predicted. Just as it is written. Now, we need to look first of all at what Jesus' compass was. And I use that word intentionally. You know what a compass is. A compass is that which has a particular magnetic attraction to the earth's true north. And that's why if you have a compass and you point it, if it's rightly calibrated, that north end of the compass, of the little magnetic piece, will point toward the Earth's true north. Actually, it's south pole, magnetically, 
but what we call the North Pole, right? North is attracted to South. The Earth's magnetic South Pole is to the North, and we call it the North Pole. And so the, that true North has been used for centuries to determine direction, the compass. Well, the point that I want to ask you this morning is, where was Jesus' compass pointed? What was that which allowed him to find his true north? Well, notice what he says. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. And do you remember Jesus using phrases like this before, as it is written? Do you remember when he was tempted by the devil? What does he say? It is written... It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And now as he is walking literally into the jaws of the lion, the betrayer, his own personal friend, who will turn, who will turn on him and betray him to be brutally killed to be separated from his father as he becomes a sin-bearer for all of us. And what do we find? It's written. It's written. Let me just pause again for another footnote. We are in, again, another Christian era in which we as God's people need to understand what our compass is and where it's pointed. As our culture moves away more and more from a cultural pointing toward at least some understood foundations in God's Word, as the teachings of the Word of God become less and less and less palatable and popular in our modern world, it is incumbent on us to ask ourselves, what is our compass? What points to true north for us? And that compass needs to be the same compass that Jesus had. It is written. When the Bible says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, the Christian says, it is written. He doesn't say, it is written, but. He says, it is written. When the word of God says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the Christian says, it is written. It is written. And across a whole variety of different things, whether it is an attempt by our culture to shift the boundaries of what is sexually permissible, whether it's to shift the boundaries of what one's identity is as a human being, whether it is something relating to our pursuit of money and pleasure and status and reputation, whatever it is, the Christian's compass, that which points true north, is it is written. Exactly like Jesus' was. You should pray for us as a church, as, as I pray for you as individuals, that we would never miss that compass. You know, any compass that you have can lose that direction. Do you know if you were to take one of your compasses and you were to put a strong magnet on it, that would be diverted from the true north, from the earth's magnetic pole. And the compass would become deceptive. Thankfully, compasses can be remagnetized, friends. 
And in the same way, if your compass has been pointing away from that simple phrase, it is written in the way you live or the way you embrace the world, the culture around us, recognize that that magnetic pull of what is popular today, that magnetic pull of what seems or feels right in the contemporary world in which we're swimming in today, recognize that magnetic force can pull you away from the simple confidence that it is written. It is written. We need to be remagnetized to the Word of God, just like Jesus was. It is written. Because his compass was rooted in not just what was written of him, that he would indeed be crucified, that he would be God's suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah 53 of the Bible, but that his awareness of God's sovereign purpose for him. You see, he knew perfectly well that he would be betrayed. He knew God's purposes for him. He knew Psalm 41 in verse 9. Listen to what David prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. He said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted. Does that describe Jesus and Judas? Judas, the one who had the accountant's bag for them, carrying their money. In whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread. Think about the poignancy of that Passover feast. Judas dipping the bread into the cup of bitter herbs and paste, eating Jesus' bread, all the while planning to betray him. Here's what David said. That one that my familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew those sovereign purposes of God. He understood that ultimately where he was going was to a place that God had directed for him to go. And he knew that it was Judas who would be the object of his, of that betrayal. Listen to John 6 and verse 64. You might just put a little footnote in your own Bible here. Or a little cross-reference. Here's what Jesus said, but there are some of you that believe not. Talking to his disciples. There are some of you that believe not. Listen to what John explains. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. He knew from the beginning. Listen to verse 71 of that shame, shame chapter. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And in fact, in John chapter 13 and verse 11, Jesus at this upper room, in this Passover feast with them, it says of him, for he knew who should betray him. He knew. He knew that he was coming in the fulfillment of Psalm 41 in verse 9 and of all the other passages speaking of the Son of Man being betrayed, being a suffering servant of God. And he, more than that, he embraced it. He embraced it. He said, the Son of Man is going just like it is written of him. I just want to park on this for just one moment. Put the spotlight on Jesus for a minute. What does he know at this point? Well, he's known this. He chose Judas to be one of his closest friends. He didn't need to. He chose him, knowing that he would betray him. He invested in him, knowing that he would betray him. He sacrificed for him, knowing that he would betray him. Presumably, he also knew he had been thieving from the bag. He had been stealing. He was a thief. 
He allowed him to continue close to him. I heard one pastor ask, if you came to one of these dinners, imagine your Christmas dinner, and you knew that someone that was there would be the one who would betray you to an absolutely brutal death in the most painful, personal way, resulting in your deep distress. Would you invite him to dinner? Would you? Jesus did. But you know, friends, he, he, in fact, he even did more than that. Do you remember John chapter 13? You can turn over there if you'd like. If not, I'll just read a couple of those verses for you. In John chapter 13, this is the parallel passage. Jesus is in this upper room. He's meeting with his disciples. And listen to verse 1, beginning there. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments. This is what a slave did. Laid aside his garments to appear as if he were a slave, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. He got down. Think of that again, that table. Their feet are sticking out at the end of those, those couches they were reclining on. And Jesus takes the position of a slave, takes a towel, and one by one begins the demeaning job of washing their feet. You know, John 13 doesn't expressly say that he washed Judas's feet, but it seems to me to be a pretty clear implication now put yourself in Jesus' perspective. From his, in his situation, this is the man who will be the immediate proximate cause of my greatest human suffering, of my greatest personal betrayal. If you don't think this hurt, if you don't think this hurt Jesus to his human core to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, I don't know what to tell you. This was the one who would betray him. And Jesus washed his feet like a slave. What kind of love? What can explain that? What kind of reaction could we put ourselves in in that kind of position that would have, that would have caused him to do something like that? Imagine him taking Judas's feet, knowing the prophecy of Psalm 41. Do you remember those words? My familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me, and he takes that heel, that picture of this betrayal, and cleans it, washes it. I, I'm just blown away. And, and I have to say here today, friends, there is a world, in, in particularly of politics, and particularly of a cultural kind of war and a cultural kind of battle that even sincere Christians wage in. And I wonder for those who we perceive to be our enemies, the ones who are betraying us, who are betraying our ideals, who are betraying our principles, I wonder how many of us are willing to go wash their feet like a slave, like Jesus did. I wonder if, if, if our personal heart 
toward toward those who we view as political or cultural or spiritual adversaries are the ones are the same that Jesus had when he took on a slave's garments and knelt down and began humbly and demeaningly washing his betrayer's feet. We should all look at ourselves and ask whether we can truly say we are adopting what Jesus commanded to his followers when he said, love your enemies and do good to them. Do good to them. You say, what was Jesus doing here? Well, there's just a picture that I want to put in your minds for a moment here. I was reminded of John chapter 18. This is just after Peter has sliced off the guy's ear, right, from a sword. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? You remember he said something similar in Mark chapter 26 when he's at the Garden of Gethsemane? He goes and falls on his face and prays, and here's what he says, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Lord, if I have to drink this cup, you know I will, and so I will take it. You say, what kind of cup? I just want you to imagine a cup that is filled with poison. That's what Jesus drank. A cup that is filled with the absolute bitterest dregs of the worst kinds of human experience. The pain of crucifixion, which was so appalling in its, in its, in its infliction of torment on the person, that it has to be utterly barbaric. Jesus took that suffering when he drank that cup. He took the deepest of human betrayal, that natural pain that all of us feel when one of our friends turns on us and wounds us. He took that cup and drank it. But even more than that, he took the cup of the poison of your sin and my sin. And he not only just sipped from it, he took that entire cup and he drank it until it was dry and there was nothing left to drink. He took the cup of God's judgment on us, the cup of God's wrath against us for our sin, and he drank it to the very bottom. And I have to believe this is what was going on when he bent down and took the, his betrayer's feet and washed it. When he allowed that wound to come into the deepest parts of his soul, when he experienced that awful betrayal, he was drinking the cup that God gave him to drink. You know, friend, this is the gospel. This is the good news right here. It's, it's simply this. It's that the cup that Jesus drank is rightly your cup to drink eternally one day. God's judgment against your sin and mine, against your rebellion and mine, against your brokenness and mine. You and I deserve to drink to the very last drop the cup of God's judgment and His wrath against us. And when Jesus 
coming with full-eyed view, a clear-eyed view of what was before him. When he took that cup and drank it, when you accept him by faith, when you embrace him in trust about who he is and who God sent him to be, that cup that he drank is your cup, and you need never fear drinking it again. You need never fear the judgment of God. There is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus drank that cup on your behalf. He drank it to the very bottom. Have you accepted Jesus this morning, friend? Have you embraced him? Have you given yourself to him by faith? He did this for you. His cup can be your cup forever. You see, the focus of the disciples as they move from shock to sorrow to self-examination, the spotlight turns to Jesus and his incredible eternal love even for his enemies, his friend who was turning his betrayer. His submission to God's will ended in his embrace of God's will, including as it relates to us. But we can't stop there because the spotlight has to turn one more time at this Last Supper, and it's got to focus on the betrayer. It's got to focus on the betrayer. And I'm going to, I'm going to call this point here the fate of the betrayer. Will you notice these chilling words that Jesus gives at the end of verse 21? He says, The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He's speaking of Judas. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Here's what he's saying. A woe, a condemnation, a great, a great distress, a curse, if you will, to that man who has betrayed Jesus. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Now, can you imagine that tombstone? I mean, seriously. We go into cemeteries today on Memorial Day or other places, and perhaps your eyes are drawn to tombstones, and you say, wow, that's an interesting message. That's a neat Bible verse. Can you imagine walking into a cemetery and seeing an inscription across a tombstone, and it said, it would be better if he had never been born. I mean, how sad. How tragic. So what was Jesus getting at here when he says of Judas, it would be better for this guy if he had never, ever been born in the first place? Well, I'll tell you at least a very small part of it, is that Judas had a very tragic end to his life. You probably know it, but I'll recount it for you anyway. In Matthew 27 and verse 3, it says this, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, his conscience was barking at him. He had no rest. As Jesus was being tried, he repented himself. That means he had a kind of change of heart. Not an entire change of heart, we'll see. But he said, oh, why did I do that? And he brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And this is what he said. I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. His guilt was gripping him. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. It's already done. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple. He didn't even keep the money that he had gained. 
and departed and went and hanged himself. He killed himself. This is a guilty conscience that never truly repented of his sin. But that in this deep remorse, he, ex he experienced none of the fruits, if you will. He didn't experience any of the 30 pieces of silver. He didn't spend them. He cast them down. And he went and he killed himself. What a tragic, tragic end. What a tragic end to the betrayer. Quisling, shot by a firing squad. Benedict Arnold died in England, basically hated almost everywhere, mistrusted. Brutus, he died by suicide. All some very painful ends. Judas, the very worst of them. Absolutely plagued by his own guilt. But you know, friend, the cost that he experienced for this betrayal was far worse than a very, very sad end to his life. What is Jesus really saying when he says it would be better for you if you were never born? Friends, he has to mean this. It's better never to be born than to be judged eternally in hell. Could we all agree there? It would be better never to be born than to experience the wrath of God in hell forever. The cost, friends, of what Judas chose was his own soul. And you say, why would Judas do this? Why? Well, I can't say for certain, but I know this. I know for certain we can say that he had an idol in his life that replaced the, 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 the place of God. What was that idol for Judas? What was it? He was a thief. It's very interesting, isn't it, that what caused him, or at least, at least textually what appears to have caused him in one sense, to go, and to, to go to the chief priests in the first place and offer his services was what? When that woman broke that alabaster box of almost a year's worth of value, almost a year's worth of pay for a daily laborer, what would we say that is today in our terms? $25,000? And poured it over Jesus? Poured it over his head? And do you remember what the disciples, and particularly Judas, was saying? What a waste. And instead of Jesus stepping in and saying, yeah, that was a waste, you should have used that for different purposes. You should have sold it and given it to Judas so he could have, so he could have given it to the poor. No, when Jesus embraced it, Judas then, the text tells us, he went to the high priest. He said, okay. This was a man that was utterly captured by something else that held his soul, that held his affection. What is an idol? An idol is something that stands in the place of God for you and promises what God promises. What does money promise to you? You'll have joy if you just get more of it. What does God promise? Same thing. What does money promise to you? You'll have fulfillment. You'll have satisfaction. You'll have security. You'll have a purpose. You'll have prominence. What does God promise you? He promises you, in a sense, those same things in the gospel. And when an idol, whether it's money, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a particular purpose or other things, when there is something that grips our life and promises what only God can promise, and we choose that as being our source of identity. We need, when we give ourselves to that which is a substitute for God Himself, 
we find ourselves in the same place as Judas was. And we shouldn't be surprised when ultimately we turn away from the simple and sincere faith that is in Jesus Christ. He could never accept Jesus Christ by faith when he was clinging with both arms to the very idol that Jesus Christ came to knock out of his life, came to destroy. Judas could not accept Jesus by faith. And ultimately, what I want to hold in front of you today is, I think, perhaps the greatest tragedy of Judas Iscariot. It was not just that he had a very sobering end. It was not just that he had an eternal judgment that would have made it better if he had never been born. It's that ultimately the story of Judas is a story that applies to every one of us. You see, just imagine what Judas saw and experienced as a follower of Jesus Christ. He was personally chosen by Jesus and traveled with him for three, more than three years, seeing his miracles that he had done, hearing his teaching like no other person taught, experiencing his personal fellowship, being able to answer, ask him question after question about the kind of things that Jesus was teaching about. He got, if you will, the veil of the kingdom of God pulled back with all the other disciples. He saw God in the flesh and lived with him and touched him and experienced what he said. Can you imagine a greater grace than that? A greater privilege? A greater opportunity to hear the message and embrace it for himself? Do you know grace is all the way through Jesus' treatment of Judas? Grace looked like Jesus getting down and washing the feet of the guy who would betray him. Can you imagine Judas sitting there knowing that he was about to go sell this guy to death, and now he's down there like a slave wash? What must have Judas been feeling in that moment? Jesus was giving him grace. What do you think Jesus intended when he said it would be good for that man, Judas sitting right at the table, it would be good for that man if he had never been born? What do you think Judas was thinking? Jesus, it seems, was searching for this man's conscience. He was putting his finger on where that conscience should have been and said, Judas, I'm giving you one more chance. I'm showing grace to you one more time. Do you know what one of the other gospel accounts records? is that when Jesus gave the sop to Judas, you remember that? And then he said, go, and what you're going to do, do it quickly. He went out, and it says in that passage, and it was night. And it was night. Oh, it wasn't just night in terms of the sun and the moon and the stars. It was night in that man's soul. The die had been cast. There was not another opportunity for grace. He had rejected the grace that had been poured from him from being chosen by Jesus, being taught by Jesus, being exemplified in Jesus' life that he experienced and saw, and then being warned at the very end. It's not too late. Oh, eventually, it became too late. The die was cast, and he now lives as the example of someone who it would be better for that they had never been born. I don't know where Judas is going to be in the eternal torments of hell, 
But I don't know many people who received a greater grace, a greater opportunity to see and savor and embrace Jesus as Savior. His eternal fate will be utterly, utterly appalling. But that's why the spotlight, after looking at the disciples and looking at Jesus and looking at Judas, the spotlight needs to come to us and it needs to come to me. You know, friends, this week I had to grapple, I had to look at myself and I had to think, Peter, with the grace that you've received, what's it doing to you? With everything that you have heard and every, all the opportunities that you have had to, to, to study and to receive the word of God for yourself, what's it doing in your life? You see, friends, the, the, the ultimate spiritual principle is this. The grace of God that is given to you will either change you or it will condemn you. It's really that simple. The opportunities that you have to respond to the offer of Jesus Christ to save you and to change you. You will either be changed by that offer of grace or it will stand as the anvil willing, ready to crush and to condemn you at that last day. Jesus said to the people of Capernaum, he said it would be better, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Why? Why will their punishment be more severe? He said because if they would have seen the works that you have seen, if they had your grace, if they had your opportunities to accept the kingdom of God, they would have repented. And because you didn't, the grace that I showed to you because it didn't change you, it will condemn you. You know, friends, it's one thing to worry about the person on a distant desert island who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and never ha had in that sense that opportunity to receive the kingdom and you hear that from skeptics all the time. Well, the answer to them is this. The judge of all the world will do right. He'll do, he knows exactly what their culpability is. But you know, let's stop focusing on them for a moment and let's start turning the spotlight back on myself. What opportunities have I had for the grace of God to reveal Jesus to me? How many sermons have I sat under? How many times have I opened the Bible and read? How many times has the word of God been proclaimed and lived out in my family, in my home, in my experience? And this is why the fate of Judas is ultimately a warning to all of us that the grace of God is not unlimited, if you will, in its number of opportunities for us to accept it. That one day if we walk away from the message that we have heard without accepting it, it will be night in our soul just like it was for Judas and it will be forever because it is appointed unto men once to die and after this, the judgment. Well, friends, contemplate Judas tonight. Contemplate him soberly. I'm sorry, this morning. Contemplate him soberly. Every time the word and the example of Jesus Christ bounced off his ears and off his idle heart. It was as if his heart was only growing harder and harder and harder to that truth. It's been said, and I'll say it again, the same sun that shines on wax and melts it and makes it very soft is the exact same sun that shines on a piece of clay and makes it very hard and un 
movable. I don't ask this morning whether you faithfully come to this church, whether you faithfully have heard the message of the gospel. I don't ask whether in in a mental sense you know and even believe in a sense who Jesus is. This morning, if you have never accepted the grace of God by embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you, accept that message, allow that grace to change you this week before it is night forever in your soul.